Hey everyone, and welcome back to Big Mad True Crime, where we get big mad over true crime. For those of you who have followed me on Instagram, you've gotten used to me covering a new case every Thursday on my Instagram stories. But this week, I'm giving you your Thursday case here in podcast form. Yay, you don't have to wait until Monday for a new episode. Once we're done with the Chris Watts case, we're going to cover a new case every Monday. So this episode is going to be an example of what's to come. Hold on to your shorts and let's dive in. Ronald and Melanie Haskell got married in 2002. They were living a quiet LDS life in Utah and they were raising four children. Sounds perfect, but it wasn't. In 2008, a domestic dispute between the two escalated to the point where Ronald dragged his wife, Melanie, out of their bedroom by her hair and then punched her in the head over and over again, while their three- and five-year-old children at the time were watching the entire thing. Naturally, Melanie called the police and Ronald was arrested. He was taken in for simple assault and committing an act of violence in front of a child. He was also deemed a threat to the safety and well-being of their children. But the justice system being what it is, Ronnie made bail and was released within five hours of his arrest. The couple try to make things work, but it just doesn't happen. On July 9th of 2013, Melanie filed for a protective order against her husband. It was obviously granted, and it looks like it also protected the children as well. And, of course, a month after the protective order was issued, Melanie filed for divorce. It only took Ronnie three whole months to violate that order when he showed up at one of their children's schools. Later that same month, October of 2013, the protective order is actually dismissed, but that's because they both agreed to a mutual restraining order tied into their divorce and custody agreement. Ronald wasn't taking this divorce well at all. His brother wound up calling for a welfare check all the way from California because he was concerned that Ronald might hurt himself. He called police back later and told them that the welfare check wasn't necessary anymore, but whatever. Finally, on Valentine's Day of 2014, Ronald and Melanie's divorce is finalized. Literally the best gift ever. According to the Daily Mail, she was seen high-fiving family and friends outside of the courtroom. Ronald's brother remembers him wondering why she was celebrating the death of their marriage. But Melanie wasn't celebrating the death of anything. She was celebrating escaping her abuser, her newfound freedom, and her fresh start. Melanie is awarded primary custody of their four children, and the Daily Mail reports that Ronald is required to pay $773 a month in child support, which only leaves him with $1,527 left each month to live on. Ronald is granted supervised visits under the watch of a psychologist only until the courts deem that he's no longer a threat to his children. But this doesn't matter for long because with the help of her sister, Katie, Melanie was able to move from Utah to Texas where Katie lives. Meanwhile, Ronald moves back to California to live with his mommy, Carla Haskell. Ronnie quickly started to spiral and everyone in his path became a victim. According to the Daily Mail, Ronald's mom said that on more than one occasion, Ronnie tipped his very ill father out of his wheelchair, dumping him onto the floor. Most recently, on July 3rd of 2014, Ronald's own mother, whom he lived with in California, 
filed a domestic violence complaint against her own son. She reported that Ronald lost his ever-living shit when he found out that she had been talking to his ex-wife. He forced his mom into her own garage and duct-taped her to a freaking computer chair. He then choked her until she was unconscious two separate times, and when she came to, she was left taped to that chair for another four hours. During this entire psychotic episode, Ronald hid all the phones in the house, threatened to kill his mother, her family, and any police officer that tried to stop him. And even though this event was horrific, there's absolutely no record whatsoever that I could find that Ronald was actually arrested for this crime. His mother was given a temporary restraining order and a court hearing was set for July 25th of 2014. Now, around July 7th of 2014, Ronald drives from California all the way to Spring, Texas, where Melanie and her sister live. He stalks the family for two days. On July 9th, he dresses up as a FedEx worker and heads to his ex-sister-in-law Katie's house. Ronnie had worked for a company that had a contract with FedEx until January, so this was an old uniform from work. Ronald gets to Katie's house and knocks on the door. Thinking it's a delivery driver, his estranged niece, 15-year-old Cassidy, opens the door. She was home alone with her four siblings while her parents ran a couple errands. Ronald asks if her parents are home to sign for a package. She says that they're not, so he leaves and she closes the door. I'm in no way blaming Cassidy for anything that's about to happen, but I think this is a good time to remember to teach our kids not to answer the door for anyone, even if they're dressed up as Batman. And of course, never tell anyone that you're home alone. Not that that would have changed anything for Cassidy. Anyway, Ronald returned to the same house five minutes later. Again, Cassidy answered the door and he asked for her parents. Again, she told him that they weren't home, but then she realized that she recognized this FedEx driver. This wasn't a delivery man. This was her ex-uncle. Immediately, knowing his history, she tried to close the door, but Ronald kicked it in. Holding Cassidy at gunpoint, Ronald had her round up all of her siblings and take them to the living room. Her brothers and sisters ranged from 4 years old to 14 years old. According to Everything Lubbock, Cassidy tried to keep everyone calm by putting a show on Netflix. She tried talking with her Uncle Ronnie, telling him the names and ages of her siblings in hopes that she could appeal to his humanity. It didn't work. Ronnie sees Katie and her husband pull into the driveway and forces them inside. They're wondering what the hell he's even doing there. Ronnie asks them where Melanie and his children were, and they said that they don't know. Now, this guy had reportedly stalked them for two days, but showed up when no adults were home, and he had no idea where his ex-wife and kids were. Okay. Getting angrier by the minute, Ronald instructed each person to put their hands behind their heads and lay down facing the floor. He pulled out his gun, and when Katie realized what he was going to do, she jumped up and tried to get the gun away from him. He shot her, and Cassidy watched her fall to the ground. Ronald then went down the line, shooting every single member of the Stay family, one by one, execution style, in the back of the head. <laughs> 
By the grace of God, Ronald's instruction to put their hands behind their heads wound up saving Cassidy's life. The bullet hit her finger, which wound up changing the direction of the bullet. She lost a finger, but only sustained a fracture to her skull. Terrified to move or make a sound, Cassidy laid on the floor next to her entire family, playing dead until Ronald left the house. At around 6 p.m., she was able to get up and run to a neighbor's house and call 911. She told them that her entire family had just been shot and tried to warn them that she believed her estranged uncle was on his way to her grandparents' house to murder them next. She gave them a description of her uncle, saying that he had red hair and was driving a Honda sedan. Police respond to the stay home on Leaflet Lane to find both of her parents and three of her siblings dead. Cassidy and her four-year-old brother Zachary were med-flighted to a local hospital, where Zachary later died. Simultaneously, law enforcement rushed to the home of Cassidy's grandparents, remove them, and sit and wait. When Ronnie showed up, he saw police and he tried to flee. This resulted in a slow speed chase that lasted about 30 minutes and spanned three whole miles before he came to a stop in the middle of a massive cul-de-sac. Seriously, it was huge. There were no less than 24 police cars surrounding him, but did he get out of the car? Nope. Authorities go to all the homes surrounding the cul-de-sac and ask if they can evacuate their homes as quickly as possible. Naturally, this freaks everybody out. During what turns into a three-hour standoff, Ronald occasionally puts his pistol to his head, but never shoots. Authorities are in constant contact with him via cell phone. In fact, a robot brought him another phone when his died. Media helicopters come and go. Some even share a live feed of the standoff. At one point, you even see police back away from his car. There was that robot who brought him the cell phone and some water at one point. There was thick black smoke blown towards his car. It was a big freaking deal in a big freaking mess. But as they all do, eventually around 10 p.m., the standoff ends and Ronald exits his shitty Honda and surrenders to police. They take him down to the homicide division where this redheaded devil refuses to speak and invokes his right to an attorney. No offense to all the angelic redheads out there. Ronald is charged with six counts of capital murder. His victims were... 39-year-old Stephen Stay, 33-year-old Katie Stay, 13-year-old Brian, 9-year-old Emily, 7-year-old Rebecca, and 4-year-old Zachary. The next day, on July 10th, 2014, Ronald has his first preliminary hearing where a judge hears the horrific details of why he was brought into the jail. On the same day, though, while in intensive care, Cassidy regains consciousness and is deemed in stable condition. Doctors say that she's expected to make a full recovery. Ronald has yet another court hearing the next day on the 11th, where he collapses, not once, but twice, in the courtroom and is taken out via a wheelchair. I feel like you can hear the sound of my eyes rolling right now. Later that day, Cassidy is released from the hospital after only needing to be monitored for two days for a gunshot wound to the head. On the 16th, Cassidy's parents and siblings are all laid to rest in matching white coffins. Cassidy was known for being a really emotionally and spiritually strong person, but she can be seen crying, just devastated, attending her family's funeral. 
To regain your faith in humanity, over $407,000 was raised by a GoFundMe campaign for Cassidy to pay for all the medical and funeral expenses and anything else that she might need. She and her family actually asked the campaign to be taken down because they had raised so much money and they were so grateful and they really didn't need anything else. As the redheaded devil is awaiting trial, childhood friends and old classmates come forward to say that Ronald was the class clown, he was popular in school, he was even the homecoming king. It's the typical we never saw this coming spiel. Ask his ex-wife, mother, or father if they saw this coming. In August of 2016, two years after the murders, it's announced that Ronald will in fact be facing the death penalty if convicted, as he should, in his upcoming trial that is scheduled to take place in the fall of 2018. Justice is anything but swift in the U.S. In fact, the case was rescheduled a total of 20 times since being charged in 2014. Ronald isn't even actually tried until August of 2019, five years after killing six of the seven members of the Stay family. Cassidy is all grown up and engaged to be married by the time the case of her family's murder goes to trial. But alas, on August 26th of this year, Ronald Haskell is in court. The prosecution argues that the motive was vengeance against Katie for helping Melanie get away from her abusive husband. The defense argues that Ronald is simply insane and didn't understand the consequences of his actions, that when he committed the murders, he couldn't tell right from wrong. They also claim that he was hearing voices. The first witness is called to the stand, Sergeant Beck. They review audio from his body cam from when he responded to the stay household. He's checking everyone for a pulse, and seven-year-old Rebecca was still alive when he showed up, but died shortly thereafter. It turns out that Ronald didn't just shoot seven times. They found 13 bullet casings at the scene for seven people. They also found a homemade silencer made from a pillow and duct tape that Ronald had brought with him, according to ABC 13. It's clear that at no point in time did he intend on leaving anyone in his path alive. The next day, Cassidy takes the stand and testifies against her uncle. She tells the courts that she didn't initially recognize him because he was wearing those sunglasses that wrap around your face and she hadn't seen him in years. According to Click to Houston, Cassidy's mother, Katie, was the first one to be killed. Remember, she got up and tried to take his gun away. He then shot Cassidy's father and then continued down the line shooting the children last. According to Everything Lubbock, Cassie was holding her ears and screaming as her uncle Ronnie shot her entire family and says that she heard a voice whisper in her ear to be quiet. When Cassidy finally opened her eyes, she saw her father holding her youngest brother, Zachary. He had tried to shield his son from the shots being fired. Cassidy said that at no point in time did it sound like her uncle was hearing voices, that everything he did was planned, and it was 100% him and only him. She described the room her family was murdered in to ABC 13, saying, The room smelled like blood. It tasted sour. 
It felt heavy and hot. There was no spirit in that room. Melanie and Katie's sister, Cassidy's aunt, says that police had them leave their mother's house so quickly that they didn't so much as have shoes on their feet or time to grab diapers for their babies. Ronald not only traveled to his ex-mother-in-law's home, but went to his ex-brother-in-law's house as well before being caught by police. The jury was shown excruciating photos of the Stay family as they laid lifeless on the floor of their Spring, Texas home. The trial continues into the next day. The jury hears a 911 recording from Ronald during his standoff. ABC 13 reports that when they asked what the emergency was, this asshole said that he had 20 cops with their guns pointed towards him. When asked his location, he told the operator that he was sure they knew. And when asked his name, he said, one of many. This is the only comment he made that had me weary that they may accept an insanity defense. Fast forward all the way to September 4th of 2019, literally last month, when Ronald's defense asked for a mistrial, saying that the prosecution asked a question causing irreparable damage to the jury. That bullshit was obviously denied. According to the defense's forensic psychiatrist, Ronald committed the murders in the midst of having a bipolar and schizophrenic episode. During cross-examination, it's revealed that Ronald told authorities that he wanted to shoot his ex-wife in the back of the head, just like he had done to the seven members of the Stay family, due to how much anger he had towards her. So, was he insane when he assaulted his wife in front of his children? Was he insane when he violated his protective order? Was he insane when he tied his mother to a chair and rendered her unconscious? Was he crazy when he dumped his father out of his wheelchair repeatedly? Was he crazy all the way from California to Texas and the two whole days he says he stalked his ex-wife's family? Ronald wasn't insane, at least not legally. He was just a ginger devil. Almost a month after the trial started, on September 24th of 2019, the defense and the prosecution both rest their case. Exactly one month after the trial started, closing arguments begin. The prosecution finishing by reiterating that Robert killed the Stay family in retaliation for them helping his ex-wife and their children move away from him. A forensic psychologist for the prosecution says that Ronald is not insane, that he knew all along that what he was doing was wrong. I'd argue that bringing his own silencer is proof of that. He didn't want to get caught by anyone reporting hearing gunshots. He knew what he was going to do was wrong. And when he was doing it, he knew he was doing wrong. The jury is sent out to deliberate, and after eight hours over a two-day period, they reject Robert's insanity defense and find him guilty of capital murder and now faces the death penalty in the sentencing phase of his trial. The jury is currently hearing evidence that will help them to decide whether or not he will spend the rest of his life in prison or if he'll be given the death penalty. And of course, I will update you as soon as they come to a decision. Now, while I was researching this case, I looked up the address of the home to get an idea of what it looked like, and then I got a little curious whether anyone else had lived in the house since the murders happened. And here's what I found. The house where the murders took place went up for sale in January of 2015. The four-bedroom, 2,700-square-foot home was listed for only $179,000. It didn't sell by February, so it was dropped to $169,000, and someone bought it. 
The new owners lived in the home for two months before putting it up for sale again. In April of 2015, the recent buyers listed the home for only what they bought it for, $169,000, but it wouldn't sell. So one month later, they dropped it to $164,900 and someone bought it. Four years later, less than a month ago, those owners put the house up for sale and it is currently listed at $214,000. The Stay family did absolutely nothing to deserve what happened to them. They were amazing people who supported their family and helped them escape a tragic situation that wound up being tragic for them. Next week, I'll be covering a different case. I am always taking requests, so if you have a suggestion, send it to my Instagram at the Heather Ashley. If you love listening to the podcast, be sure to subscribe and leave a review. We love reading them. Next week, we'll be back with episode eight of the Chris Watts case and another case on Thursday. Until then, we out. Mm-hmm.